Chapter Three, Part One of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Gilbert. Autobiography by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Three, Part One last stage of education and first of self-education for the first year or two after my visit to france i continued my old studies with the addition of some new ones when i returned my father was just finishing for the press his elements of political economy and he made me perform an exercise on the manuscript which mr bentham practised on all his own writings making what he called marginal contents a short abstract of every paragraph to enable the writer more easily to judge of and improve the order of the ideas and the general character of the exposition soon after my father put into my hands condillac's traite de sensations and the logical and metaphysical volumes of his hors d'etudes the first notwithstanding the superficial resemblance between condillac's psychological system and my father's quite as much for a warning as for an example i am not sure whether it was in this winter or the next that i first read the history of the french revolution i learnt with astonishment that the principles of democracy were apparently in no insignificant and hopeless a minority everywhere in europe had borne all before them in france thirty years earlier and had been the creed of the nation as may be supposed from this i had previously a very vague idea of that great commotion i knew only that the french had thrown off the absolute monarchy of louis the fourteenth and fifteenth had put the king and queen to death guillotined many persons one of whom was lavoisier and had ultimately fallen under the despotism of Bonaparte. From this time, as was natural, the subject took an immense hold on my feelings. It allied itself with all my juvenile aspirations to the character of a democratic champion. What had happened so lately seemed as if it might easily happen again, and the most transcendent glory I was capable of conceiving was that of figuring successfully or unsuccessfully, as a Giordanist in an English convention. During the winter of 1821-2, Mr. John Austin, with whom at the time of my visit to France my father had but lately become acquainted, kindly allowed me to read Roman law with him. My father, notwithstanding his abhorrence of the chaos of barbarianism called English law, had turned his thoughts toward the bar as on the whole less inequitable for me, than any other profession and these readings with mr austin who had made bentham's best ideas his own and added much to them from other sources and from his own mind were not only a valuable introduction to legal studies but an important portion of general education with mr austin i read anasius on the institutes his roman antiquities and part of his exposition of the pandists to whom was added a considerable portion of blackstone it was at the commencement of these studies that my father as a needful accompaniment to them put into my hands bentham's principal speculations 
as interpreted to the continent, and indeed to all the world, by Dumont. In the Trace de Legislation, the reading of this book was an epoch in my life, one of the turning points in my mental history. My previous education had been, in a certain sense, already a course of Benthamism. The Benthamic standard of the greatest happiness was that which I had always been taught to apply. I was even familiar with an abstract discussion of it, forming an episode in an unpublished dialogue on government, written by my father on the Platonic model. Yet in the first pages of Bentham it burst upon me with all the force of novelty. What thus impressed me was the chapter in which Bentham passed judgment on the common modes of reasoning in morals and legislation, deduced from phrases like law of nature, right reason, the moral sense, natural recitative, and the like, and characterized them as dogmatism in disguise, imposing its sentiments on others under cover of sounding expressions which convey no reason for the sentiment, but set up the sentiment as its own reason. It had not struck me before that Bentham's principle put an end to all this. The feeling rushed upon me that all previous moralists were superseded, and that there indeed was the commencement of a new era in thought. This impression was strengthened by the manner in which Bentham put into scientific form the application of the happiness principle to the morality of actions, by analyzing the various classes and orders of their consequences. But what struck me at the time most of all was the classification of offenses, which is much more clear, compact, and imposing in Dumont's redaction than in the original work of Bentham from which it was taken. Logic and the dialectics of Plato, which had formed so large a part of my previous training, had given me a strong relish for accurate classification. This taste had been strengthened and enlightened by the study of botany on the principles of what is called the natural method, which I had taken up with great zeal, though only as an amusement, during my stay in France. And when I found scientific classification applied to the great and complex subject of punishable acts under the guidance of the ethical principle of pleasurable and painful consequences, followed out in the method of detail introduced into these subjects by Bentham, I felt taken up to an eminence from which I could survey a vast mental domain, and see stretching out into the distance intellectual results beyond all computation. As I proceeded further, there seemed to be added to this intellectual clearness the most inspiring prospects of practical improvement in human affairs. To Bentham's general view of the construction of a body of law, I was not altogether a stranger, having read with attention that admirable compendium, my father's article on jurisprudence, but I had read it with little profit and scarcely any interest, no doubt from its extremely general and abstract character, and also because it concerned the form more than the substance of the corpus juris, the logic rather than the ethics of law. But Bentham's subject was legislation, of which jurisprudence is only the formal part, and at every part he seemed to open a clearer and broader conception of what human opinions and institutions ought to be, how they might be made 
what they ought to be, and how far removed from it they are now. When I laid down the last volume of the Traité, I had become a different being. The principle of utility, understood as Bentham understood it, and applied it in the manner in which he applied it, through these three volumes, fell exactly into its place through the keystone which held together the detached and fragmentary component parts of my knowledge and beliefs. It gave utility to my conceptions of things. I now had opinions, a creed, a doctrine, a philosophy. In one among the best senses of the word, a religion. The inculcation and diffusion of which could be made the principal outward purpose of a life. And I had a grand conception laid before me of changes to be effected in the condition of mankind through that doctrine. The Traité de Legislation wound up with what was to me a most impressive picture of human life, as it would be made by such opinions and such laws as were recommended in the treatise. The anticipations of practicable improvement were studiously moderate, depreciating and discountenancing as reveries of vague enthusiasm many things which will one day seem so natural to human beings that injustice will probably be done to those who once thought them chimerical. But in my state of mind, the appearance of superiority to illusion added to the effect which Bentham's doctrine produced in me, by heightening the impression of mental power and the vista of improvement which he did open was sufficiently large and brilliant to light up my life as well as to give a definite shape to my aspirations. After this I read, from time to time, the most important of the other works of Bentham, which had then seen the light, either as written by himself or as edited by Dumont. This was my private reading, while under my father's direction my studies were carried into the higher branches of analytical psychology. I now read Locke's essay, and wrote out an account of it, consisting of a complete abstract of every chapter, with such remarks as occurred to me, which was read by, or I think, to, my father, and discussed throughout. I performed the same process with Leviticus de l'Esprit, which I read of my own choice. This preparation of abstracts, subject to my father's censorship, was of great service to me, by compelling precision in conceiving and expressing psychological doctrines. Whether accepted as truths or not, regarded as the opinion of others. After Helvidicus, my father made me study what he deemed the really master production in the philosophy of mind, Hartley's Observations on Man. This book, though it did not, like Traité de Legislation, give a new color to my existence, made a very similar impression on me in regard to its immediate subject. Hartley's explanation, incomplete as in many points it is, of the more complex moral phenomenon by the law of association, commended itself to me at once as a real analysis, and made me feel by contrast the insufficiency of the merely verbal generalizations of Condillac, and even of the instructive groupings and feelings about for psychological explanations of Locke. 
It was at this very time that my father commenced writing his analysis of the mind, which carried Hartley's mode of explaining the mental phenomenon to so much greater length and depth. He could only command the concentration of thought necessary for this work during the complete leisure of his holiday for a month or six weeks annually, and he commenced it in the summer of 1822. In the first holiday he passed at Dorking, in which neighborhood from that time to the end of his life, with the exception of two years, he lived as far as his official duties permitted, for six months of every year. He worked at the analysis during several successive vacations up to the year 1829, when it was published, and allowed me to read the manuscript portion by portion as it advanced. The other principal English writers on mental philosophy I read as I felt inclined, particularly Berkeley, Hume's Essays, Reed, Dougal Stewart, and Brown on Cause and Effect. Brown's lectures I did not read until two or three years later, nor at the time had my father himself read them. Among the works read in the course of this year, which contributed materially to my development, I owe it to mention a book written on the foundation of some of Bentham's manuscripts and published under the pseudonym of Philip Beauchamp, entitled Analysis of the Influence of Natural Religion on the Temporal Happiness of Mankind. This was an examination not of the truth, but of the usefulness of religious belief, in the most general sense, apart from the particularities of any special revelation, which, of all the parts of the discussion concerning religion is the most important in this age, in which real belief in any religious doctrine is feeble and precarious, but the opinion of its necessity for moral and social purposes almost universal, and when those who reject revelation very generally take refuge in an optimistic deism, a worship of the order of nature, and the supposed course of providence at least as full of contradiction and perverting to the moral sentiments as any of the forms of christianity if only it is as completely realized yet very little with any claim to a philosophical character has been written by skeptics against the usefulness of this form of belief the volume bearing the name of philip beauchamp had this for its special object Having been shown to my father in manuscript, it was put into my hands by him, and I made a marginal analysis of it, as I had done of the elements of political economy. Next to the Tracte de Legislation, it was one of the books which, by the searching character of its analysis, produced the greatest effect upon me. On reading it lately, after an interval of many years, I find it to have some of the defects, as well as the merits, of the benthamic modes of thought and to contain as i now think many weak arguments but with a great overbalance of sound ones and much good material for a more completely philosophic and conclusive treatment of the subject i have now i believe mentioned all the books which had any considerable effect on my early mental development from this point i began to carry on my intellectual cultivation by writing still more than reading in the summer of 1822 I wrote my first argumentative essay. I remember very little about it, except that it was an attack on what I regarded 
as the aristocratic prejudice that the rich were or were likely to be superior in moral qualities to the poor my performance was entirely argumentative without any of the declamation which the subject would admit of and might be expected to support to a young writer in that department however i was and remained very inept dry argument was the only thing i could manage or willingly attempt though passively i was very susceptible to the effect of all composition whether in the form of poetry or oratory which appealed to the feelings on any basis of reason my father who knew nothing of this essay until it was finished was well satisfied and as i learnt from others even pleased with it but perhaps from a desire to promote the exercise of other mental facilities than the purely logical he advised me to take my next exercise in composition one of the oratorial kind on which suggestion availing myself with my familiarity with greek history and ideas and with the athenian orators i wrote two speeches one an accusation the other a defence of pericles on a supposed impeachment for not marching out to fight the lacedaemonians on their invasion of attica after this i continued to write papers on subjects often very much beyond my capacity but with great benefit both from the exercise itself and from the discussions which it led to with my father i had also to converse on great subjects with the instructed men with whom i came in contact and the opportunities of such contact naturally became more numerous the two friends of my father from whom i derived most and with whom i most associated were mr grote and mr john austin the acquaintance of both with my father was recent but had ripened rapidly into intimacy mr grote was introduced to my father by mr ricardo i think in eighteen nineteen being then about twenty-five years old and sought assiduously his society and conversation already a highly instructed man he was yet by the side of my father a tyro in the general subjects of human opinion but he rapidly seized upon my father's best ideas and in the department of political opinion he made himself known as early as eighteen twenty by a pamphlet in defence of radical reform in reply to a celebrated article by sir james mackintosh then lately published in the edinburgh review mr grote's father the banker was i believe a thorough tory and his mother intensely evangelical so that for his liberal opinions he was in no way indebted to home influences but unlike most persons who have the prospect of being rich by inheritance he had though actively engaged in the business of banking devoted a great portion of time to philosophic studies and his intimacy with my father did much to decide the character of the next stage in his mental progress him i often visited and my conversations with him on politics moral and philosophical subjects gave me in addition to much valuable instruction all the pleasure and benefit of sympathetic communion with a man of the high intellectual and moral experience which his life and writings have since manifested into the world end of chapter three last stage of education and first of self-education part one recorded by
Gary Gilbert.